0: It's with great pleasure that I welcome today Warren Weiss. Warren's uh, very well known in the industry as Bunny Weiss. That's his nickname. <laughs> <laughs> I've known him for a very long time, and uh, he was a founder at Founda- I was a general partner at Foundation Capital for for many many years, which is where I got to know him. But uh, actually, uh, our family. Families go back a long time. Uh, my husband Dominique and Bunny worked together at Next under Steve Jobs and uh, lived a very exciting time in our industry. And more recently, Bunny has uh, started his own fund, West Wave Capital. Bunny, welcome
1: to the show. Great, Shumana, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be back with you again and uh, certainly known each other a long time. And Great respect for you and what you're doing with your audience.
0: Well, uh, and you have very recently invested in one of the 1M by 1M companies. So it's um, – I have. you have had a time to together a bit recently.
1: Yeah. Yes, uh, yes, I wanted to thank you for the opportunity to get introduced to Fullcast IO, which is in the enterprise sales planning arena. We're very excited to be an investor, and we appreciate the referral that you gave us.
0: And I thought you would be the perfect uh, investor for that company because of your background in sales uh, management. And it's, you know one of the issues that we faced while we were funding that company is that everybody in the industry asks, "What is the AI angle to this company?" I'm like, "This is not an AI company. It's a workflow and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> automation company."
1: Yeah, if you can't deploy your sales force effectively uh i think you're in a lot of trouble in today's technology world
0: yeah so let's uh start with a little bit of um what you are thinking about doing with west wave capital it's obviously a a new project that you're doing so what's your investment thesis what's the fund size what what do you yeah. want to invest in um going forward
1: yeah no that's great yeah great thanks thanks um so uh, west Bay capital really is a 2018 was our first fund fund one was a 33 million dollar fund we're in the micro bc asset class category yeah. that's kind of funds designated to be under 100 million the focus of the fund is enterprise only uh sas applications security cloud infrastructure and edge computing uh, iot and 5g Mm -hmm. and uh we have some thesis around artificial intelligence and what it should be used for around engineering productivity and those are the those are the immediate thesis we've invested in 41 companies we've had uh seven exits to date we're soon to have uh, a few more there so the fund's off to a good start and we're raising our our fund too which i can't talk about publicly but it'll, it'll be a little bit larger
0: so um in fund one what is the check size that uh, you've been writing
1: yeah we started initially with three hundred thousand dollar checks we're now up to five hundred thousand and mm-hmm. in our next fund we'll be writing checks up to two million dollars as we'll be taking a little bit more ownership first fund was really agnostic about ownership we really wanted to get our brand out there and work with great firms we're we're very um uh strategic and how we think about who we do our our seed precede and series a projects with i've been at this a long time the data is overwhelming who you invest with really matters
0: mm-hmm. and what uh, do you like to see before you write a 300 500 thousand dollar check or what you're going to be doing going forward what level of validation are you looking to see especially in an enterprise play what kind of um, yeah. what are we talking about? Um,
1: yeah, you know, it's really situation dependent. But, you know, I would say uh, the data that we've collected, about 40% of our projects had some customer revenue at a few customers. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't confuse that with them having really product market fit, but they've been able to demonstrate kind of beyond an MVP that they, they have a product that actually mm-hmm. works. We've also done many projects that, that have no revenue and uh, um, they don't even have a product yet. So, you know, our our thesis is in the micro VC asset class space. The initial rounds are between 1 million and 3 million, and we partner with ANGELS and other micro VCs, and sometimes with Series A firms, but if, lately it's it's unusual that that, that will happen. Yeah, so,
0: the micro VC uh, asset class is completely segmented.
1: Yes. Yes, and so, um, all, the, all the Series A and all the other, you know, uh, alphabet soups that you wind up getting funded have also moved up quite a bit in terms of the, the right. size of each of those rounds.
0: And uh, geography money, are you uh, investing all through in the United States, all over the West Coast? What's, what are you thinking?
1: Yeah, I, I would say that um, about 70% of our projects are here in the Valley. Still, uh, although, you know, they're highly distributed teams these days with, you know, kind of yeah. work from anywhere, especially during that's the good. pandemic. We, we do have a couple projects uh, in Europe and um, not in Asia. I, I think that would be harder for us to do, although we're actually talking with one now that the, uh, the requirement for us, if it's outside the U.S., that eventually they are going to move to the U.S. And that yeah. we have a partner, a venture partner that's local on the ground to assist the firm and uh you know we're very strict about that because we want to have good co-investors
0: okay now uh, you started off by saying you've already had seven exits uh within three years two and a half three years so talk to me a little bit more about the exits and um you know, what are the circumstances of these? That's unusual, right? For for a small micro VC fund to have seven exits within a three-year yeah. period sounds very unusual. So could you elaborate on that? Yes.
1: Yes. So, uh, you know, one of the areas that we're in is security. You know, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game in terms of yeah. trying to stay ahead of the bad. People and the security business, the, you know, the funding and the growth of the larger enterprise security companies is, you know, they're, they're hungry for growth. And so they're looking for acquisitions that um, can be tuck-ins. And for us, that, you know, that, that, that's represented a 30% IRR, even though they've been small dollar amounts. And so we, we really focus on funding great engineering teams, people that know how to build world-class prod, products. So yep. if they don't find product market fit, then you know they've not burned through very much money, and they have very talented engineers, and they have some customers, and yeah. therefore it's been pretty easy for us to exit those companies. And we use about half of that money to recycle, to mm-hmm. go in other 10, 10x style investments. So it's mostly been in a security related field where we've seen these exits uh, happen quicker.
0: Very interesting. You know, we have had the same experience. We have, uh, we sold a company called Adia from our portfolio to Qualys. Um, You know, this is before Philip Corto passed away, uh, actually a couple of years ago, and I knew Philip very well. And uh, we had exactly the same issues that they were finding customers, but not quite product market, high velocity product market fit. So I introduced them to Philip and, and Philip and Sumit basically acquired the company. So, yep. is, is is everybody seeing this a mode of investment in cybersecurity?
1: Yeah, I think you know the companies that are focused on enterprise are seeing this kind of activity in enterprise security for sure. I, it's very hard to build a standalone, independent security company. Have I mean, you seen Sentinel One? do it recently, but, you know, there are hundreds of small acquisitions that um, can can really work for the entire ecosystem. Uh, entrepreneurs have made good money at that, and they found a good home for their employees and customers, and they get to see their product live on and thrive and provide immediate impact to these larger security uh, 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 partners do
0: you feel comfortable talking about the economics of such deals how much money goes in um you know it's just a thumb rule how much money goes in and how much money comes out
1: yeah you know um what we try to work really hard with is the the folks whether we're we're doing kind of a a pre-seed up to three million or a full seed up to five million is Mm -hmm. you know you've got to hit certain milestones if you don't get to a million dollars in arr with raising that kind of money with a viable product and have a, an efficient uh you know way you go to market where you make 70 to 80 percent gross margin then you really don't have a business that deserves to get series a funding um we really believe it should be that you know structured and so in those cases let's just say shimana the three to five million goes in and i would say as low as 15 million to 50 million would come out mm-hmm. in terms of an exit, all within three years. And so, while they're not large numbers, it's the right thing for to, to happen in the marketplace. And um, like I say, if some of those you know um, don't don't meet those requirements, we generally have worked very closely with the entrepreneurs because it's in their best interest to sell. If they go get a Series A, you know, raise 20 to 25 million. At most yeah. recently, our Series As have been done. We've done 29 follow-ons rounds at 85 post then mm-hmm. you know you're going to really struggle if you take that money from a dilution standpoint yeah. and then don't miss your numbers and the and the series b then become draconian i mean that's where they're really weeded out if they if they don't hit those series a milestones to go from kind of 3 million to 10 million and then 10 million to 30 million so we kind of lay that all out with the founders up front and mm-hmm. so it's not a surprise and everyone's working towards a, a similar goal versus not being clear about what the goals and objectives are with the funding. Because venture capital money is expensive, especially yes. at the earliest stages. It could be highly dilutive. So, you know, I was a longtime entrepreneur, and I always try to watch out for the, the founders because I want them to understand, you know, this is very expensive money, and you've got some very aggressive goals you need to hit if you want to be a significant winner and go on to build an independent company. Yeah.
0: You know, we have uh, very... Aggressively uh, developed a whole track within our program. You know we have a big education uh, effort, right? And we are scaling that education effort right now with some very interesting partnerships, including with Udemy. Um, the the theme that we have developed around this topic is bootstrapping to exit, and and by bootstrapping I don't only mean companies that are working without any outside capital I also mean companies that are working in a capital efficient way with small amounts of capital but it's the same philosophy that you do things very capital efficiently and get to certain milestones such that without making the exit price too high you can actually exit and and have a good outcome for everybody around the table right so um you've answered one of the questions that I had uh, in my uh, original talking points that I had shared with you is that are you chasing unicorns only, or are you also open to the, you know, smaller exit
1: <laughs> 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 very Well, you know, you, know, you know, they have this term, minicorns now. So we have a number of companies that have been named minicorns, which could become future unicorns. I, I don't really pay any attention to that, Shimon. I've been doing this a long time, and you're rewarded. You know by your execution not by what you say and that requires you get, get customers keep customers you know grow them efficiently and you know that's what we're looking for and uh you know at the stage we're at uh you're going to have a fairly high mortality rate and yeah. if you focus on building great products then you know we, we, we've been very fortunate we haven't had a single loss in the portfolio in three years i, I can't remember a time in my I've been, in, I've been an venture investor for 21 years now. I can't remember a time in history that's ever happened. I, I don't know if that means we're actually doing a really good job or it's the sign of the times because there's so much capital available, both strategically and, and from a venture standpoint.
0: Well, I think the number of companies that have critical mass and can acquire is much, much higher now than what it was even 10 years ago, right? I mean, look at the crop yeah. of SaaS companies. There are so many public SaaS companies, so many SaaS companies that are now owned by private equity, the Toma Bravos and the Vista equity partners that are now trying to do roll ups and blah, blah, yeah. blah. So there are many more exit opportunities than there ever was earlier in the venture capital history.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a great point uh that's a very important point the private equity late stage buyout firms like the tomo bravos that you name have been extremely aggressive and offer valuations in many cases are close to what strategics used to offer you and so you have a bidding war and now you've got more players in the pool that want to acquire so when you're working with these uh you know uh they're able to get a much larger uh, uh, set of uh, firms interested, both strategics and and buyout firms, uh, because everybody, you know, the market caps are pretty healthy in all these spaces that we play in today, and they've got to keep growing these companies aggressively. Otherwise, you know, they can't continue to be a public company or get public.
0: So um, what is your analysis of the other uh, channels of uh, enterprise Computing today. We've talked extensively about cybersecurity. We've talked about bootstrapping to exit or capital efficiency to exit uh, early on. In the context of cybersecurity, do you see that applying to the other avenues of enterprise software?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, we have a thesis around each one of our current uh, investment strategies and analytics. You know, we believe the world. Uh, needs to look more like Google search, you know, rather than learning SQL and mundane languages to try to extract data. There's so much data available today that you should be able to use uh, neural networks and machine learning, artificial intelligence technology to abstract that so that the end user can actually ask an English question versus write a report. And uh, in the area of multi-cloud, you know, Years ago, I, I funded a company called Clicker that was bought by Cisco and it was one of the first multi cloud management companies. I remember talking to my partners at the time saying, Well, Amazon's going to own the cloud. And I said, But well, it never works that way in the IT industry. So, in the multi cloud world, you know, you kind of got the big three with Google, uh, Microsoft, and, uh, and Amazon. So, every part of the, the stack database, networks, analytics, security all those have to be rebuilt for a multi-cloud environment observability and you see lots of winners uh in that space doing multi-cloud kind of management with uh breadth and depth that kubernetes brought to market Mm -hmm. and ability to orchestrate between clouds uh it's offered lots of startups uh, a a great way to be vendor you know avoid that traditional vendor lock in so um, lots of great things uh going on there And then, you know, one other space, you know, everybody talks about artificial intelligence many times in the early days of these companies. They don't really have any artificial intelligence because they don't have the data that they need to build the models on to create supervised or unsupervised learning models. So uh, one area that we focus on, we believe that engineering quality assurance and building applications, building UI and UX can be done mostly by machine learning versus hand coding. Uh, traditional systems. So we have a few companies that are in that space that are trying to take care of 80% of this using machine learning and fixing bugs with bots and things like that. So, and then the test space, you know, remains, uh, you know, very interesting. There's just so much disruption uh, that new trillion-dollar industries are, you know, being created. You see, you know, banks becoming e-banks, insurance companies becoming insurance, and you pick every industry, supply chain, they're getting entirely reinvented. And and then one more area that's interesting is, is blockchain. Uh, we don't yeah. do any cryptocurrency, but in the enterprise blockchain space, we've seen some terrific use around supply chain and security around anti-money laundering, combined with database technology to yeah. offer uh, very efficient, highly secure SaaS applications. So we're, we're, we're seeing a real resurgence in, in that area.
0: So um, I have a couple of thoughts listening to you. One is all these areas we are talking about, you know, whether it's multi-cloud, whether it's AI, machine learning, blockchain, all of these, and, and also the vertical SaaS. each one of these are talent war scenarios. They are highly specialized areas. There's, you know, there's not like abundance of people who have great expertise. And, and that's also another driver, I think for um, these acquisition scenarios because the larger companies are also trying to hire talent. so one of the ways yeah. they, they hire talent is by acquiring smaller companies. so that also creates a, a conducive environment for these uh, smaller exits.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, you know the you know the whole um, workforce has been massively disrupted by the pandemic, and it's brought to light new issues about how people really want to work and where they can work from. And so those distributed nature in which you engage and hire and onboard and train and, you know, with employees has become much more strategic. We have made a couple of investments in that HR-related space, and, uh, you know, it's HR Uh, While sometimes it's difficult to sell because human resource executives, CHROs, have lots of business problems but not lots of power in companies. But they are being more and more empowered uh, to, you know, keep these talented workers uh, in in the company. Um, The amount of activity I see at the board to ensure that we're actually engaged with employees in the most efficient way is uh, more than I've ever seen before.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing it from everybody, is that the talent war is just insane. It's because there's so many companies out there, right? There's so many small companies, and there's so many mid-sized, large yeah. companies. Everybody needs a finite pool of talent, and, and the, the output of new, sufficiently trained people is, is not at that level. Um, which actually yeah. – w- were you going to add to that?
1: Yeah, yeah, just one other thing I would mention, Uh, you know, I think the workforce of the future has to be thought about in terms of both human and, uh, you know, uh, both robots and drones because work augmentation that's, yeah, you know, it's taken place by those. We just funded an insurance company that just does insurance on um, robots and drones. Because oh. there's so many of them being used. And, you know, there's a great fear uh, amongst factory workers that robots would replace them completely, but exactly the opposite is happening. They're allowed to do the mundane tasks that it's hard to hire and keep people for, where they get hurt all the time. And mm-hmm. workers can, you know, grow into new jobs that are more strategic uh, from a supply chain or manufacturing or customer service standpoint. I think everywhere all of us go today around, the United States and even around the world, everyone's trying to hire people. So I yeah. think the workforce of the future has to consider those other options as, as you know, part of the, the task to be able to, you know, have enough talent to run these businesses and grow.
0: And, and facilitating all that, there are startup opportunities that you know, that are growing yes. in the in the HR area as well. You know, the other one uh, that I think you would resonate with and have thoughts on. Um, bunny is what we experienced with fullcast.io these guys the the fullcast.io team came out of salesforce.com sales ops organization they were very very deeply knowledgeable about sales ops and that's what they built their whole sales management system around it was not ai it was not machine learning it was really deep domain knowledge in managing sales operations. Now, this theme exists in many other functional areas, many other vertical domain areas where there are deep domain knowledge that can be programmatically automated and, and software built around. I imagine you're seeing this in, all, in many other uh, industry sectors, right?
1: Yeah, yes, we are. You know, the fullcast team is quite interesting because they understand the complexities of multi channel global sales planning and territory management and doing it efficiently. And it's amazing how long it takes a large company to reassign new territories every year, every quarter, new product line, acquisitions, merge them in. And you know, everybody says, Well, can't Salesforce do that? And the answer is no. The, the second piece, I would say, is sales operations and marketing operations are very tied in with this area that's growing fast called revenue operations, mm-hmm. because they're integral to understanding both, the, you know, revenue opportunity and the cost to service that revenue. And, you know, SAS metrics are so focused on trying to understand the CAC ratios, uh, what it really takes to, you know, uh, find, deliver, sell a customer that those two areas now, which you would think, uh, you know, time would have enough automation by now, are just large white spaces available white to-
0: space. yeah. that was That was surprising to me when we started working on full-cast IOS, how, how wide open that area still is. And, and that tells me that there are many industry segments where, which are far more backward. I mean, we are talking, full-cast IOS is selling to you know, cutting-edge SaaS companies and finding white space. So now, if you look in manufacturing, if you look in logistics, these are and if you look in you know industry section segments that are not as uh, you know as advanced, there is ton of workflow white space, and it doesn't need to be AI. I mean, eventually you introduce AI, and you will find opportunities to introduce AI. But there is just bread and butter workflow automation still wide open.
1: Yeah. No, it, it's uh, it, it's amazing. The more transparent that the the data on you know who's doing what in your companies and how customers buy, there's more opportunity to really understand both business processes and mine data to make uh, things more um, uh, efficient uh, in, in in all these enterprises. They're still incredibly inefficient. Most of these large enterprises.
0: Yes. Yeah. Any, any uh, thoughts on specifically opportunities that you have identified out there that you would look for a company to invest in uh, just so that our audience is aware of, uh, you know, specific problem domains yeah. where uh, you see, see possibilities?
1: Sure. sure. There, there's this new concept or fairly new concept known as data stitching, our application Mm -hmm. stitching and these are things that fall like into customer service we funded a company called loops where they're putting together data and application business processes to get new insight for example combining Mm -hmm. product management and engineering data with real customer service data and really trying to intersect Mm -hmm. those two so you can understand uh you know what it is that the customer's actually asking for and what the responses have been because a lot of these applications reside in the cloud now. There's a whole new set of—I could kind of simplify it by saying middleware—but it's really uh, new ways to integrate data between applications in real time, as well as create next-generation set of analytics using AI. There, there's the, the whole, yeah, the whole—the whole data warehousing business that was done centrally by IT, and then you built business analytics. Off that it really is going to go through a complete transformation because now with the kind of integration that's available and the kind of uh, usability ease of use and the amount of data that you can collect and act on in real time, uh, everything uh, is is speeding up in these enterprises and you can no longer sit around and argue about whose data is right before you make a decision. you really need to get accurate information and be fully transparent behind it so I think i think that whole analytics space uh, we're very excited about i think these next generation uh, applications sas applications where you can use multiple sets of information coming from many different transactional data sources is another place that's uh super exciting the uh, whole shift left movement in security to be able to pick up and build an application uh, from scratch, using security properly, it's an area known as cloud posture management, is uh, a, a big big growth area as well. And, of course, you know, we've been waiting for the, you know, what used to be the industrial Internet, then was clean tech. It's now, you know, back in some forms of ESG and other things. The whole IoT connectivity yeah. is really starting to rapidly take off. And there's new applications and new security, and it's a very uh, exciting space that, you know, You know, companies used to think about doing digital transformation in 10 or 20-year slots. If you don't do a full digital transformation and become a digital native company, you're going to be out of business. And so the pressure, you know, on these large corporations through things like COVID, COVID actually showed all the flaws of these companies that couldn't engage digitally or sell digitally. Um, And that's really, really helping the startup world because you've got to innovate very fast now to take care of, take, you know, take advantage of those opportunities.
0: Well, the other great thing that has happened for uh, startups selling to enterprises in COVID is that there, is, there are much bigger deals that are closing with no in-person interaction. And you must, with your background, you must appreciate that greatly.
1: Yeah, well, we're figuring out that this is also involves full forecast because it, we ask our head of sales or our chief revenue officer and our marketing CMOs to really document since the beginning of COVID how the marketing and sales process has changed and to not go back just because we could see people in person
0: and do the same
1: jobs the way we used to years ago and what you're finding is a lot of customers are really enjoying that I mean they're enjoying the fact that they can engage digitally you know there is some fatigue from time to time but, you know, the, the, the SaaS applications need to be incredibly responsive to remote marketing, selling, and customer service. And many of the, you know, original Gen 1 SaaS, you know, you look at something like Workday, it's 20 years old now. Salesforce is 20 years old. And right. there's, you know, new, new ways in which to build these applications that are much more engaging, uh, much rapid uh, uh, development cycles, you know. And uh, that's also provided startups great opportunities.
0: Very good. Great conversation, Bunny. I should let you go. I think you're in the car. <laughs> yeah, no, I
1: actually, I actually got back home. I, I apologize to your audience about I tried to sign on. So I'm sorry I was late and sorry I couldn't be in person. But thanks for the invite.
0: Most welcome. We'll uh, talk again soon. Take care and uh, yeah. thanks for coming.
1: And best to dominate.
0: Bye. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.